Each year, Americans consume $32 billion worth of dietary supplements that don't have to go through the rigorous process of FDA approval. Instead, the agency is tasked with identifying and removing dangerous supplements from the market after they've caused harm. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Peter Cohen, an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and a primary care physician at the Cambridge Health Alliance. Dr. Cohen has written a perspective article on monitoring supplement safety in the United States. Dr. Cohen, as you note in your article, under the current U.S. system, supplements such as vitamins, minerals, botanicals, amino acids, probiotics, are assumed safe until proved otherwise. Give us some insight into the history of this limited regulation. How have government, medicine, and the public thought about supplements, and why don't they require pre-marketing approval? It's a great question. It's actually ironically due to the fact that physicians and experts in the FDA were concerned about the safety of high-dose vitamins. In the 1960s and 1970s, when the high-dose crazes were encouraging use of high-dose vitamin C, for example, to treat common cold, regulators became concerned that these high doses of vitamins might in fact cause problems. And in fact, now we know, for example, the SELECT trial has recently shown that high doses of vitamin E actually increase the risk of prostate cancer rather than decrease it. But at the time, that research hadn't been performed yet. And as regulators moved in to more tightly regulate high-dose supplements to require safety testing of them, the industry, the vitamin industry, lobbied back very aggressively and stirred up a grassroots movement, which would eventually remove the FDA's ability to require safety data prior to the introduction of practically any dietary supplement in the United States. You write that more than 500 supplements have been found to be adulterated with pharmaceuticals or pharmaceutical analogs, including some that are untested, unapproved, or banned. Is purposeful adulteration the primary problem with supplements, or are there also problems of accidental contamination, poor quality control? It's all of the above. It's actually, first off, the safety of the ingredients. Any ingredient that's going to have a pharmacological effect on the human body could have a positive effect and a negative effect. So many of the problems have to do with the actual pharmacology of the substance, independent of whether or not it's extracted from nature. For example, risalochic acid, which is a botanical used for centuries, has now been clearly shown to cause renal cancer. So it's not just the adulterants, the contaminants, and the poorly produced supplements, for example, ones that contain hundreds of times the amount of minerals that are listed on the label. But it's also the actual herbal ingredients that might cause harm. You and your colleagues identified a new analog of methamphetamine in a popular sports supplement. How did that case come to your attention, and how did the process of testing and getting the ingredient withdrawn from the market unfold? We first heard about this ingredient because regulators in Europe had found a brand new stimulant, a brand new cousin of methamphetamine, in the urine of athletes, and they were becoming banned from various sports venues. And many of the athletes claimed that they had taken this ingredient in supplements. And we want to explore whether or not that was the case. So we purchased several of the supplements that were purported to have this new ingredient. It was a fascinating challenge, though, to try to prove that a brand new methamphetamine cousin or cousin of methamphetamine was in this supplement. 
because it's not a pharmaceutical. It's not available on the market. It's very hard to prove for certainty that what you have in the supplement that you have in the lab is exactly this brand new substance. So in our case, we did two things. One is that we had colleagues in South Korea who had intercepted a batch of this pure chemical to confirm our findings. And then we had the chemical synthesized by an American firm and used those two pure samples to confirm that we had found a brand new methamphetamine analog in these sports supplements that were readily available in retail stores in the United States. In terms of solutions, you recommend creating a more effective surveillance system for supplement safety, but you say that a pilot project going in that direction had some success but was terminated due to lack of funding. Can you tell us about the pilot project and how you think we should build on it? A fantastic project out of the San Francisco Poison Center in 2008 was a collaboration with the FDA in which the FDA funded the Poison Center to look at could they more rapidly identify dangerous supplements. And they carefully logged calls to the Poison Center that they were receiving about supplements in their area. They immediately analyzed them for ingredients. They tabulated these in real time and were able to report promptly to the FDA. And what they found was that a bunch of supplements that hadn't been drawn to their attention, the FDA's attention yet, started to pop up. And this was the first good evidence that we had that we have systems in place that could do a much better job of detecting harm from supplements, but we're not using them. Unfortunately, despite this initial success of demonstrating that this is possible in this pilot in San Francisco, funding dried up. And as we speak today, basically, poison centers receive many calls, thousands of calls about supplements. The FDA does, but they don't share the information with one another. So that's a huge lost opportunity to improve the quality of the system that we currently use to detect harmful supplements in the United States. You talked about the lobbying that has kept the FDA from controlling supplements. Is there any effort underway to change that, to require pre-marketing, testing, and approval? And given the sheer number of supplements that are available, would that approach actually work? There's an excellent bill currently in committee, the Dietary Supplement Labeling Act, sponsored by Senators Dick Durbin and Richard Blumenthal. And what this bill would do would be to require that if there are known adverse effects of a supplement ingredient that's listed on the label, this is something we haven't talked about yet, but a major problem with the current system. Even if side effects are known, let's say St. John's wort has a multitude of drug-drug interactions, that information does not need to be on the label. Or vitamin E, high dose, can increase prostate cancer risk. That information does not need to be on the label. The new bill in committee is a great move in the right direction to get consumers more information. The problem is that it wouldn't eliminate any of the mischievous ingredients that we've been finding in the hundreds in supplements. And it also wouldn't permit the detection of a particularly dangerous preparation of an herb. Because as extraction methods change and herbs are prepared in different ways or synthetically produced, in fact, it's very possible that some forms of it might be more hazardous than others. We have no way of detecting that. Supplements are clearly very popular and are an enormous market. As a physician, how do you talk to your patients about supplements? What do you recommend? Well, 
Supplements are incredibly important to us as physicians, of course. I recommend supplements all the time to my patients. I'm often recommending, when appropriate, iron supplementation, calcium and vitamin D, you name it, many different multivitamins in my patients with gastric bypass surgery, for example. So regularly encouraging my patients to take supplements. What I would like to be sure of is that when they go to purchase that multivitamin, when they go to purchase that calcium, that it has what's on the label, and they can read on a calcium label that this may increase the risk of nephrolithiasis. I think that's information that we as physicians and consumers should all have. So I certainly recommend supplements, but I hope that we can change the system so that both physicians and consumers can have more accurate information and we can eliminate the truly dangerous supplements and ingredients from the marketplace. So finally, what can physicians do to make that happen, to improve the safety of supplements? Twofold. One is that if you're caring for a patient, which is all too frequent, who suffers harm and you believe that may have come from the supplement, it doesn't have to be proven, I would strongly recommend you report that through the FDA's online portal, MedWatch. If we can make changes to more rapidly integrate those reports and get information back to clinicians in real time, that would greatly enhance the interest in reporting. And we as physicians really need that support because we often don't know what are in supplements. That's step number one. Step number two, for those who are particularly engaged and interested, would be to advocate for change so that changes, uh, as we've discussed today, will be implemented such that we can have that information. Thank you, Dr. Cohen.